During the 80s, 1980s, I traveled extensively here and abroad with a music ministry. We played in churches, we played in bars, uh, we played at parks, uh, street corners, wh wherever we could find a place. <laughs> kind of like this. This is an example. This young motley crew, that kind of was us. That's just going anywhere, outside. You know, Craig Finley and I, it, when we first were smitten with the love of God, and we started writing these songs, we just took our guitars to Green Lake. And I said, you go this way, I'm going this way, and let's just see who we can play for. And, you know, I was, I was kind of, well, I looked like a lot like the picture in that trailer. You know, I was just a hippie-looking guy. So I'd come to other young people sitting on the grass in the sun and say, hey, can I play a song with you? Yeah, bring it on. And pretty soon, you see the countenance fall in their face. You know, they realize this is about God. This is about Christ. This is about salvation. But we went all the way around doing that. We just, and as a band, Wherever we could find 110 volts, we would fire up the band, literally, and sing and preach about the Savior's love. This, this is early 1980s from a, a, a park in Idaho. They had a band shell there, so we took the band shell. Uh, that's me in the middle, Christopher Hobbs on the left, and that's Craig Finley on the right. <laughs> Fresh out of high school. Oh, yeah. We ourselves had found peace with God, and, and we wanted to share that, that priceless treasure with others. And during that decade of the 80s, that's, that's all that I did. I was able to do it full time. No visible means of support. I just would go everywhere. If they, they would give an offering, that was it. And we were married for six of those years and began having kids. But God just sustained us, and that's all we wanted to do. We made a lot of friends and a few enemies. Once while we were playing from a street corner in Kamloops, British Columbia, that's, that's up there a ways, a big fellow with this long, greasy hair and no front teeth came right up to me. And I'm, I'm playing and singing and preaching the gospel and the band's behind me. Um, and this guy slowly unsheathed these scissors. They're sharp, right? And he, and, he, and he just starts slowly just opening and closing, just staring at me. <laughs> okay, I can't remember exactly what he looked like, but in my dreams he looked like this. <laughs> he eventually, I, normally this would have unnerved me. I'm not Superman, you know, having this guy in my face with these things. Uh, but I just felt God's presence. I felt like I was protected. And so I just kept on singing and kept on preaching. Eventually, he went around the back to where Mike Duran, many of you know Mike Duran, uh, was playing bass and offered to cut his bass strings. Later... Um, it, well, we just ignored him. He got in his car, and he, and he burned rubber. You know, all this smoke coming from his car as he's just chugging around the corner there. One more fleeting attempt to intimidate us. 
The next night, and we've been inviting people to the concert we were going to have in a church the next night, two ladies came and explained this mysterious situation. That corner that we happened to light upon was known as Hooker's Corner. They worked there. They heard our message and decided to come. The guy that menaced us was their pimp. I had the privilege of praying with one of those women to receive Christ. And that church came around her and her kids. She had some young kids and, and showed her another way and got her off that street corner. Yeah, it's just wonderful. We just, as I said, it's just spontaneous. Just go where we could go with this message. The whole street corner experience brings up a couple of questions. What would motivate someone to want to hinder others from just sharing love, the love of God? The other question is, what would motivate someone to risk being hindered and uh, harassed and potentially stabbed or killed? These are the main issues that we're going to consider as we look at the last two Beatitudes. You've heard of perhaps the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus begins the preamble for that sermon in Matthew are these Beatitudes, these eight blessings. The word Beatitude means blessings or how to be happy statements. That's what the word blessing means, happy. So he's going to tell us how to be happy and we're going to look at the last two here, picking it up in verse 9. Blessed or happy are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Who are these peacemakers? How would we define them? They, Jesus says that they're the blessed ones. They're the happy ones. First and foremost, that would describe those who have made peace with God. The action has fallen to us to make peace with God and those that respond and make they're peacemakers. Since mankind rebelled in the garden, we have been at war. Man has been at war with God. How many here remember living with your back to God? I do. This is all my formative years as a youth. I went my own way. I did my own thing. That was my motto. Do your own thing. Do what you want to do. Just, I forget the next line, but that was a famous song, and I loved it. It's your thing. Do what you want to do. See, John knows it. John and I, another misspent youth, man. <laughs> Denying him the right to be God in your life, that, that's the way we do it. It's the way of the world. Friendship with the world, James says, is hostility toward God. Think about that. Friendship with the world, coming around and doing what they do and, and embracing their ideology, that's hostility toward God. You say, I'm not hurting anybody. I'm not blaspheming God. You're being hostile toward God. God, for his part, laid down his enmity toward man at the cross. It's now a one-sided war. With man shaking his little tiny fist at God in defiance of God's sovereignty, his right to rule. 
But God's wrath toward man's sin, that was satiated, that was satisfied at the cross. The only thing necessary now for us to make peace with God is to surrender in faith to the Prince of Peace. That's it. It's just not complicated. Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Justified by faith, it means acquitted of all the charges against us. That's what it means to be justified. Because of that, we have peace with God through faith in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3.26 says that all sons of God, we are sons of God. And, and you might say, well, no, I'm a, I'm a woman. This is, this is a, a generic term for the offspring of God. Through faith, we are all the offspring of God. And those who have made peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, it says we're fellow heirs with Christ. We're fellow heirs with Christ. We inherit everything that he inherits. Whatever he owns, we, we own. We're fellow heirs with Christ. It's Romans eight seventeen, But there's another sense in which Peacemakers will be called sons of God. Those who help others find peace with God are peacemakers also. And sons of God in that they resemble him in doing the work of God. Okay, what is the work of God? What is the work that God is doing, the Father is doing in the earth today? In what way are we to fulfill the adage like father, like son? 2 Corinthians 5.19 says that God was, the Father was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. That's what happened at the cross. It was the Father, through Jesus, reconciling the world to himself. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. This is a God thing. This is a God thing. And the Father was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And the Apostle Paul goes on to say that we, as his ambassadors, we mimic our Heavenly Father by entreating others, be reconciled to God. It says that this, this ministry of reconciliation is ours. We are to be peacemakers in the world today. What a high and noble calling. We have. The problem is, however, not everyone really appreciates hearing that clarion call, be reconciled to God. And some of them carry scissors. But Jesus goes on to say in verse 10, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes on with this same beatitude, but says it a different way. Blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil things against you falsely on account of me. He's not, he's not saying when you're persecuted for being in Doomkoff. No, this is on account of me for being my witness. Blessed are you when they insult you, and they trash talk you for bearing witness of Christ. And then verse 12 
Rejoice and be glad. Or your, your translation may say exceedingly glad. It's a, it's a combination of words that literally means jump for joy much. It's an irrepressible, demonstrative gladness. When you are persecuted, rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This final beatitude underscores the blessing that accompanies persecution. Again, this makes no sense to a worldly-minded person. A blessing connected to persecution? If the world embraces us as believers and just hangs with us and everything is copacetic, then something is wrong with our Christianity. Jesus says when that happens, it's like salt losing its savor. I mean, my wife is a great cook, um, but if she took salt out of the ingredients... It would be bland, right? There'd be no zing to it. It just kind of makes everything else taste better. He says when a Christian loses their influence, it's like salt that has lost its savor. It's good for nothing. You just, just to be thrown out onto the ground, trampled by men. You're not, you're not going to consume it anymore. You're not going to be influenced by it anymore. By definition, the world, and the Bible uses that word, it's speaking of a world system that is in opposition to Christ. It opposes Jesus Christ, which is why Jesus said, in the world, you, as a lover of God, are going to find tribulation. There's no way around it. You're living in the world the church, there's the church, and then there's those that are opposed to Christ and the church. So there's going to be trouble. There's going to be tribulation. And you've got to love the honesty of Jesus. You know, he's not, you know, he would flunk, you know, salesmanship 101. You don't go around saying, yeah, follow me, but make sure you pick up the cross uh, because you can't be my disciple unless you die, baby. <sighs> he doesn't sugarcoat the cost of discipleship. It's clear that Jesus didn't come to make life easy, but to make men and women great. You might want to write that down. I forget who first said that, but I, I wrote it down. <laughs> he didn't make, come to make life easy. Everybody today is it's all about me, 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 me. I want to self-actualize. I want to follow my heart. I deserve it. He didn't come to make life easy. He came to make men and women great. So you choose. Do you want to be the jellyfish that goes with the current or the eagle? flies high and is battered by the winds and the rain. If you're doing Christianity right, you will be persecuted. Jesus guarantees it. All the apostles, except for John, died horrible deaths. You know? And you would think that the people that are observing this, this, this way, 
which is what Christianity was initially called, they would watch, you know, the disciples getting sawed in half and bludgeoned to death and think, yeah, I'm going to try another way. (laughs) But Christianity exploded in the early years, even in the face of fierce adversity. And they were bled because of their testimony that the risen Lord Jesus was Savior of the world. If they would just shut up, they'd live long lives. The first three centuries of church history was a dangerous time for the believers at large in an attempt to unify the vast domain of the Roman Empire. A form of emperor worship was established. Once a year, a man had to go and burn a pinch of incense at the Godhead, the altar of Caesar, and say, Caesar is Lord. Those that did that, the participants would receive a libellus, L-I-B-E-L-L-U-S, look it up. It was a certificate that said that they had done that. And then they were free to go to worship any other God that they wanted. Christians, by the thousands, refused to bow the knee to Caesar. Find upstanding citizens became outlaws overnight. I mean, what what does our Christianity cost us? What are we willing to do? What price are we willing to pay? These, I, I hope it challenges you. It challenges me. And it's a healthy challenge. William Barclay writes, the only crime of the Christians was that, uh, the Christian was that he set Christ above Caesar. And for that supreme loyalty, the Christians died in their thousands and faced torture for the sake of the lonely supremacy of Jesus Christ. They refused to put anyone above him. And it cost them, cost them dearly. Polycarp, one of the early church fathers, was arrested as an old man and brought to the arena. Do we have a slide for this? Next one. The arena looks like this. Next slide. This is Rome, baby. And it's heyday. A little prayer group going on there, and you see they're releasing the wild beast that would shortly tear them apart. But do you also notice what's going on around the perimeter here? Okay. There, whoop, sorry, there we go. They have crucified, these are perhaps the elders of the church, and um, crucified them. And then they they started at one side and they just lit the torch here, the fire, and set them on fire as they went around. All they had to do was say, Caesar is Lord. Got quiet in here. Anyway, Polycarp is an old man. He's brought to the arena to be burned at the stake in front of the cheering crowd. The proconsul pressed him hard and said, Swear to Caesar, and I will release you. Revile Christ. Polycarp replied, Eighty and six years I have served him, and he never did me any wrong. 
How can I now blaspheme my king that has saved me? Though we enjoy a freedom of religion here in this country that tempers the discriminant taking of lives, think Afghanistan, Pakistan, and countries in Africa. It's tempered imprisonment. Think China, Iran, North Korea, just for being a Christian. That kind of action has been tempered in this country. Still, the Christian experiences an array of subtler forms of persecution. And we see it growing. Anyone who broadcasts a belief a belief in ultimate objective truth, that there is right and wrong, there is good and evil. Anyone that goes public with this idea of there being this overarching purpose and plan for life, you do that in the open marketplace of ideas such as the social media, you will be shouted down as ignorant And to suggest, for instance, that a biological female is a woman, that is a cardinal sin. Deserving of dis... Well, ostracization. For, the, for, the, for this display of narrow-mindedness. I think you feel me. You know what I'm talking about. Victor Stenger, in his book, God, the Failed Hypothesis, lays all the problems in the world at the feet of religion, and in particular, Christianity. He says, if thinking people, not those doomkoffs that go to church on Sunday, but if thinking people would simply set aside foolish faith and instead seek what is observably real science would give us all the answers and we would live happily ever after and I find it wholly ironic that the apostle Paul points to observable reality as proof of God's invisible attributes his eternal power and divine nature, so that we are without excuse if we deny him. Exhibit A. Darwin said, when he considered the inimitable contrivances of the human eye, all those ultra-sophisticated components that all had to be working at once for this to actually do any good, he said he was greatly discomforted by it. Even something as simple as the design on a peacock's feather, he said, made him nauseous. You know, the truth about God is known to everyone. This is a point that Dan Kreft brought up. You were here a couple weeks ago. People know in their heart of hearts that this didn't happen by accident. But he says, we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. 
We're afraid of letting anybody else be God but us. That's the bottom line. Let's look again at the Beatitudes here in verse 10. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, that is being or doing right before God. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Here's another thing. Thinking people should only talk about earth and what's going on here. Um, But believers... People of faith, they understand that there is a hell to shun, a heaven to gain. Which is why Paul said, for me to live is Christ. You know, to live, to have a pulse, to to be breathing here on this planet is Christ. My relationship with him, my service for him. To live is Christ. To die is gain. (laughs) It's even better. Who talks like that? While he lived, he enjoyed a fruitful labor. Can you imagine the the fruit piled up to Paul's account? It's still ongoing. He wrote most of the letters in the New Testament. Still changing lives. He enjoyed a fruitful labor, calling people out of darkness into his marvelous light. He was equipping people to live happier, more meaningful lives below, even while fitting them for heaven. And heaven was never far from his thoughts. 2 Timothy 4, 7. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, Paul says, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Everyone who is conscious that this this ain't all there is. That just as Christ came the first time that we celebrated Christmas, he's coming again. History is irreversibly going someplace. Even as Nero was about to remove Paul's head from his shoulders, the apostle knew that he had a future. He had a hope. From that stinky prison cell, he could write, Rejoice, rejoice, and again I say, rejoice. One reason he could rejoice was because Christ was with him. God's presence was there. Christ is never nearer than in our time of greatest need. Providing grace sufficient for every need, Hebrews 4.16. Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were part of that captivity, that, that, that Babylonian captivity. 
Nebuchadnezzar came, torched Jerusalem, and took them captive. And one day he said, you're going to have to bow to my authority. I am God to you. And these three men refused. And they were thrown into a fiery furnace for not bowing to the wisdom of the age. They're thrown into the fiery furnace. And the king discovered something totally amazing. And he asked the people with him, he says, hey, we threw three dudes in there, but I see a fourth. And this this fourth person is like the son of God. But Paul could rejoice and be glad, not only because Jesus was nearer than ever, but because his reward in heaven was great. A crown of righteousness laid upon him, he said. Jesus will be the glory and lifter of our heads forever and ever. That will never stop. Let's consider that. For a moment, the thought that sinners like you and me could end up with a crown, a symbol of heaven's smile, is a great reward for any momentary light affliction we might endure, we might reap here on earth. What could be more desirable? What could be more rewarding than to hear these words? as we pass from this life to the next, from the mouth of God, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. This is an image that Jesus gets us about that holy, sacred moment. You know, yesterday we had a memorial service. This place was packed. Young Brady Bither. Many of you know the Bithers. 21 years old, consumed by cancer, and gone. People came out in droves. And how comforting it was. I mean, there was a lot of lamenting, a lot of grief, obviously, especially when a man in the prime of life is taken. As parents, that's our worst nightmare. We expect to... Have our children bury us, not the other way around. But the hope that was given, the hope of heaven. Brady now, no more cancer, no more pain, no more suffering. Every tear wiped from his eye. He had the gift of music. And I'm sure he's he's found an instrument in heaven. Probably blue guitar to go with his blue, deep blue eyes, you know. Dan mentioned yesterday. Glory! That's our destiny. What is coronavirus to me? Now I've got some big bad antibodies going on. Praise the Lord. I'm just visiting this planet and 
All I want to hear is, well done. Nothing else I accomplish in this life is going to mean anything compared to that. Amen? Let us draw continually, therefore, from God's measureless grace the strength we need to fight the good fight, to finish the course, to keep the faith. For that's the kind of courageous devotion befitting sons and daughters of God, the kind that Jesus modeled, the kind he rewards, the kind that pleases God. Let's pray. Lord, help us not to be confused by the wisdom of the age. That says there is no absolute truth. Truth is what you make it. What's right for you is right for you. It might not be right for me. There is no objective truth, no ultimate meaning and purpose in life. So live for yourself. Follow the base desires of your heart and mind. But that way, Jesus says, is the way of death, destruction, strife, Thank you for showing us a better way. Thank you for the wisdom of heaven. If there's anyone listening to me here or online that hasn't opened your heart to Christ, do it now. I mean, it's not an accident that you're here or listening. And watching. And it's time to stop living with your back to God, to stop fighting for control and opposing His sovereignty, His rule in the world and in your heart. Let Him be who He truly is, the lover of your soul. But you have to love him back. That much he has left to you because love is not love if it's not voluntary. So choose to love him back today. And this also goes for brothers and sisters in Christ who have just been clouded by unbelief and all these vain voices that have distracted you from your first love. I'm going to pray for you as well. It'll just be one prayer for both groups. You can just pray in the quiet of your heart. Say, dear God, I hear your voice calling to me today to open my heart and to receive you, and I do that. I lay down every excuse that would keep my love and my affection at bay. 
keep me living at arm's length. I recant all that stinking thinking, that foolishness. That truly is foolish thinking. Faith in you, that's the smartest thing anyone could do. It's brilliant. And I make that smart move today. Come into my life. Come into my heart. Refresh my faith in you, Lord. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.